0: Welcome to church. Uh, It's Easter. It's all about this Sunday. This is the linchpin. This is the crux of our faith. It's the cornerstone. Without it, we literally have nothing. I told you on Good Friday, if you were here, uh, if if the death didn't happen and the resurrection didn't happen, then this is by far the biggest hoax of all time. And so we're going to walk in the evidence of, I'm going to call it a case for Christ more specifically because we're using stuff from the case for Christ, more, more significantly a case for the resurrection uh, this Sunday. But before we go there, and so we call it evidence for the resurrection, I'm going to put a, a list of reasons as to why this thing is true, uh, but then what I know, 12th Easter in is that you can have all of the evidence and none of the heart change and you can walk out of here going, yeah, that's probably true, but whatever, Uh, So I want to appeal to you as we close this time out uh, that not only is there a significant amount of evidence that Christ didn't just live a perfect life and die the death in our place that we should have died, but that he in fact rose from the dead and that resurrection sets him apart from every other religious figure since time has begun. Every other figure, he stands alone. If you walk in this place going, hey, religion's great, and whatever religion you pick is great for you, then you have missed it because Jesus does not leave room for that opinion. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But you have to pick one. And so what I know is that we can present you with the evidence But only the Holy Spirit can change your heart and where you can follow Christ this morning and give him your life. And so I would just ask if you are a parent, uh, zero to 100, no matter what your life stage is, maybe there's a lot of distractions in your life, uh, or or maybe you're ready to be locked into this time, Uh, maybe you come twice a year, or maybe you come 52 weeks out of the year to church, whatever your story is, if you're a new Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you've been a Christian, that you would set this time apart, that as we open the scripture, that you would ask yourself this question, what, God, do you want me to learn this morning? And so so here we go. I do want to say, just as a way of promotion, next week uh, we are starting a sermon series called Disciplines of a Godly Life. It is kind of part two to this whole idea of trauma. Trauma deals with the past, and uh, this whole idea of being disciplined in a godly life deals with your future. And what I've told you in the entire sermon series is that if nothing changes, what? If nothing changes, then nothing changes. And I know that's just kind of a goofy saying, uh, but I mean that. If nothing changes, as your pastor, you you can't expect different results and do the same thing because that makes you insane. And so if you want to see change, if you want to see fruit in your life, if you want to see the gospel take hold in your heart, then there are spiritual disciplines that you have to consecrate yourself to. And we are going to get into those week after week after week, and we're using this book called Disciplines of a Godly Man And Disciplines of a Godly Woman, and we would ask you to get a hold of that literature. It's gonna be for sale for 10 bucks on Tuesday, and we're gonna sell it throughout the sermon series. It has changed a lot of men's life in our church, and I think we're really just scratching the tip of the surface. And so be ready for that. Be coming to church each week, not just on Easter, and uh, we're gonna get started right away. It all comes down to the resurrection. It all comes down to the resurrection. If Jesus stayed dead, If Jesus never got off the cross, if Jesus stayed in the tomb, then our hope is dead, our faith is dead, we should quit singing, we should quit praying Greg. You can pay some people, you can fill in the dots there, but we quit praying Greg. We turn the lights off like last Sunday at 9.30, we sell the building, we go home, but if Jesus Christ is alive, our hope is alive, our future is alive, God is alive, it's the biggest day of the year, we celebrate the name of Jesus, and even people that aren't Christians get the magnitude of this day. There was an article in Newsweek in the early 2000s that talked about Jesus, and I think they even made him the person of the year or the person of the millennium, and they said this, by any secular standard, By any secular standard, Jesus is the most dominant figure of Western culture. True or false? It's undeniable. You don't have to be a Christian. It's just undeniable. Best-selling book every year is what? The Bible. It shapes what we think and our values and how we see him and how we see art and how we see politics, unfortunately, and how we see our marriage and our family. All of it has its origins in Christ And culture has been radically transformed by his influence. And so because we're new life and because it's Easter, we're only talking about Christ. We're focusing on his resurrection. And I'm going to try to keep the jokes to a minimum. So you're welcome. Amen. If you have not read the book A Case for Christ, you can find the cliff notes from this message in there. If you have your Bibles, I know most of you go the virtual route at this point. But open your phones, open your Bibles, open your tablets, look on the screens. Paul, the apostle, dresses the importance of the resurrection and the foolishness of following Christ without it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he he dedicates this whole chapter to dealing with this issue because the Corinthian church was dealing with this issue as well. The resurrection that separates everything in Christianity from other religions. And Paul says this, verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? There was this heresy entering the church. He says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. Verse 14, this is a big one. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. So Paul is saying what I told you. The reason that I'm saying it to start the service off is because the Apostle Paul already made this statement. He's saying, if Christ didn't raise. We are utterly wasting our time. And so our commitment was different than the early church. Our commitment is, which service do we want to go to on Sunday morning, and our real sacrifice is 8 a.m. Okay, Paul was saying, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then why are you risking your life and being murdered for the cause? Christians were being brutally murdered in Colosseums for saying, Christ died on a cross, raised from the dead. He's not a way. He's the only way. And they were saying, man, this is heresy. This is absolute insanity. And they felt threatened. The Roman culture felt threatened. And so they murdered Christian after Christian after Christian. He's saying, it's all in vain if Christ didn't actually raise. He says, we're even found, verse 15, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised, that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now check out verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And so you want forgiveness of sins. You want God to see you the way he sees his perfect son so that you can go to heaven. Then Christ has to not just die for your sins. He has to raise to life so that you can have new life in him. If that didn't happen, it's all exempt and you're not forgiven. And so Paul is just preaching. Verse 18, the sermon keeps going. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'm going to close with that idea. That we are to be pitied. We are really a despicable, just manipulated people if this thing didn't happen. But if in fact Christ raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all sinned, so also in Christ we shall all be made alive. And so I want to just throw at you this case for the resurrection. The first service I moved too slow, and I could feel the pain of that. I'm sensitive to crowds. And I thought they're, they're getting tired of me, they're judging me. And in my insecurity, I was thinking um, they're not spiritual enough for me. No, I'm just kidding. But as I was preaching this, I go, man, you know, I, th- I think 8 a.m. was like my pilot study. I think I missed it a little bit. I hung out too long on the evidence and, and not enough on how it transforms us. And so we're going to move faster this service. And I want you to just take these notes. You can take these notes. And if someone you love didn't come to church this morning on Easter and they need to hear the gospel, here's some evidence for this whole thing called Christianity that you can throw at them. How do we know that the resurrection's true? Number one, because Jesus actually died. If Jesus didn't actually die, there's no such thing as a resurrection. But historically, we know Christ died on a cross. He went to the cross in the most painful of manners. He had a crown of thorn placed on his head. He was so angst about going to this cross that he was sweating blood. That the most sensitive nerve centers in his human body were pierced in his hands and his feet. And he was suffocated on that cross, and history tells us that this is true, and no one really argues the fact that he actually went to the cross. There's just too much evidence that he was laid in a tomb, that an executioner pierced his side to make sure that he was dead, that he was wrapped in 100 pounds of linen in the tomb. And the second thing that's on the screen, and I'm going I'm to try to just go with this, that Jesus had a tomb in a well-known location, that's significant. If I was going to make this thing up as your cult leader here this morning on this fictitious Easter service because none of this really happened, then I can promise you this. I would not place, I would not place a narrative in Jesus' tomb where everyone could go to the tomb and see that the tomb was empty. This was a rich guy who had Jesus take his tomb. It was a burial plot that everyone would have known about. There, there was a stone that was put in place. There were Roman guards that were guarding it. This was not ambiguous. Everyone would have known where this tomb was at. Everyone would have known this guy named Joseph who had wealth and status, and Jesus was placed in this, in this verifiable, identifiable location where everyone could have said, that's where Jesus' body should have been. If I'm going to make this up, I don't know about you. If I'm going to make it up, I'm not going to make that tomb verifiable. The third thing is this. It sounds misogynistic, but it's important. How many women we got out here on Easter? Statistically, 65% of you are women in church in America on Easter. So this one's for you. Women were the first to see Jesus. And the reason that's significant is women were marginalized and minimized in the culture of Jesus' time. And so they, they couldn't do some things. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. They couldn't testify in court. And if you wanted to build this fake religion built on this premise that no one's ever made since or before Jesus, that that there is a Savior who rose from death and conquered it, then you're going to go with people to verify the narrative. And the people you're going to go with are people that can't be identified or people that could actually testify in open court because they're part of the pitch. And you're not gonna choose the most marginalized people in the culture around you. Women couldn't even testify in court. And so it's just odd enough to be true because if you're gonna make it up, you would never include this in the narrative. Mary Magdalene first to see Jesus. And we know her story. She is truly the least of these. And so it's too odd not to be true. Here's another one. I love this one. The disciples went from cowards to courageous. There was post-resurrection courage that is significant historically and in Scripture. There's this guy named Peter. He denies Jesus three times. And he hears the rooster crow, and he realizes the magnitude of what he's done, and he falls down, and he feels just disgraced by his actions. And then Christ rises from the dead. Peter no longer fears death because he sees Jesus conquer death. Now he's this figure in scripture and history that we learn about Peter. We learn about his own death because all the disciples were also, besides John, murdered for the cause. Peter has this post-resurrection courage in his life where when it's his time to go and he has to either reject Christ or say Christ is who he says he is, and they say we are going to crucify you like Christ. I don't know if you know history, Catholic Church talks about this a lot, that actually what happens is Peter says, take me, turn my body around, crucify me upside down, because I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. If he did not see, look at me, if he did not see Christ raised from the dead, why would he do that? If he realized six months in that it was all a hoax, and that his Person that he followed never rose. I can promise you this, he wouldn't be crucified and he wouldn't say, Turn my body upside down. He wouldn't start preaching messages in the book of Acts where he's saying, I've seen Christ dead, I've seen Christ risen, the Holy Spirit can live in you. Jesus changes everything. He would know that it was all a hoax. Peter is evidence of the resurrection, post resurrection courage. How about this one? Jesus doesn't appear to like five people. Paul says he appears to 500 people, big crowds, small crowds. He looks at Thomas. He says, Look at the nail scarred hands. Thomas touches them. Thomas says, I believe he appears to people and it's not hidden. How about this one here? Number six, Jesus' followers. This one's big. Jesus' followers, not just Peter, died for the cause. They died for the cause. There have been people in history that have made outlandish claims about themselves and about what God has told them, all of which have died. Every major world religious leader has died. Jesus stands alone by conquering death. If you lined up Gandhi, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, Buddha, and you said to them, which one of you claims to be God, which one of you claims to have the power to rise from death? Look at me when I tell you this. There's a line of religious leaders... They all take a step back and Christ alone takes a step forward in his claim to be the risen Savior who forgives sins. And Christ's followers see this death and they see this resurrection and they all submit to his authority and then besides John, they die for the cause. And what's radical about that is it's not just them, right? Maybe they were so close to Jesus they felt trapped in that narrative. It's not just them. The Holy Spirit comes, thousands of people start getting saved, and then all of a sudden the early church develops, and there's this medical doctor in the second century who is tasked by Romans of going to the arenas where Christians are being slaughtered by animals in in these arenas for their faith, And his job, Claudius' job, is to examine the bodies of the post-morbid Christians who have died for the cause. And then study everything that's going on in Christianity around him. And he makes this simple statement. He says this. He says, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something that we witness in them every day. Every day. They're going to the Colosseums and they're not coming back. And this this is after the disciples. This is later. They're going to the Colosseums and they're not coming back because they are saying Jesus died and Jesus rose and if Jesus rose, then I get to rise again too. And so you can take my life, I can have it torn apart by these animals and Colosseums, but it's okay because this is just a short glimpse of the narrative of my life. This is huge testimony as to the validity of Jesus' claim to rise from death. Here's another one. This is interesting. We don't even know where Jesus' tomb is at anymore. Have you ever thought about that? And the reason we don't know where Jesus' tomb is at, you you can go to Israel and you can find out all sorts of things. You can see this site and you can see that site. Well, where did Jesus uh, get buried? And they're going to look at you and go, and they're going to show you this makeshift tomb and say, well, we don't know, but it looks something like this. And this is a tourism trap at its very heart. If they knew, they would charge you to show you the actual tomb. But the reason we don't know where this tomb is at the reason it doesn't have a headstone is because once Christ rose from the dead, no one cared where he was buried because he didn't stay buried. No one cared where the tomb was at because there was no Savior in the tomb. It just challenge this on your own thinking about what you know about the significance of tombs. Famous graves, we make these famous graves like these mile markers that we want to visit, we want to pay homage to, we want to respect. I learned this week from a pastor listening to a sermon on the same topic. He said, if if Jesus' tomb is empty, then no one cares where his tomb's at. If Jesus' body's still in the tomb, everyone would go there and say, this is where Jesus lies. I mean, my goodness, if we would do this for people like Elvis, did you know that 600,000 people visit Graceland to see the tomb of Elvis every year? Then you can rest assured, we would do it for Jesus Christ, but no one cares because he's not in the grave. Jesus' followers worshipped him Not as a good man, but they worshiped him as God and they were Jewish, and this was absolutely heretical. This was blasphemous. The only reason they would do this is if they saw his resurrected body, because to worship anyone besides God the Father as God in Jewish culture is blasphemy. And they're saying, We have seen Jesus risen from the dead and he is God. He makes the claim and he backs it up. This one's even more radical. And you have to have siblings to get it. Who in here has a brother? I don't, okay. I have a sister. I was raised by two moms my sister and my mom, which means it really just gives definition as to why I'm so manly. But let's just keep going with this logic train. Jesus' followers worship him as God, Jesus' family worships him as God. If I'm gonna come to you this morning, I've got about 30 minutes, I've got a pitch. I'm going to show you why I am this messianic figure. And just so you know, if I ever say anything like that, run for the hills and call the cops. But let's just say we play that game, and I want to recruit some people to start, you know, bringing awareness to my cause. Do you know what I'm going to do? Exactly what I did. I'm going to move as far away from home as possible because who knows that you're full of it more than any other person in your life? Family. Family. I'm going to say this audacious claim. I'm going to say, I know you don't know me that well, but trust me, trust me, I'm perfect. And if you don't know me, you go, that doesn't sound true, but meh, right? If you're my sister, you're going to come back at me with about 50 examples as to why I need to be stoned. (laughs) Jesus is sharing the bunk bed with the brothers. The brothers see Jesus Christ rise from the dead, They see the testimony of his life, and they say, you know what? He's perfect. Who in here has a sibling that thinks they're perfect? Teenage years? We can just move on. Teenage years, okay, that's it. That's all you need to say. Jesus in his teenage years, sinless. His family sees who he really is. His mom sees who he really is, and she worships the risen Savior. His brothers worship the risen Savior. They die for the cause. James pens a book of the Bible. He becomes a leader of the early church. It's verified by history. Jesus' resurrection is verified by history. Here's another one. People who hated Christians. People who hated Christians became Christians. More importantly, people who murdered Christians. Paul was named Saul. People who murdered and hated Christians became Christians themselves because Jesus had an encounter with them. And when they saw Jesus for who he really was, they were willing to give their own life even though they had already taken lives. Paul is on his way to Damascus. He's murdering Christians. He's a zealot. And then Jesus says this, Saul, Saul, why do you what? Why do you persecute me? And Paul gets a new name to Paul and his life is completely transformed and he goes from killing Christians to being killed for being a Christian. Jesus' resurrection didn't even happen, like when when they study this, Jesus' resurrection was recorded a short time after it happened while everyone was still alive. It was verifiable. It wasn't like a few hundred years later someone had a vision and said there was this Jesus guy and he was God and no one can prove it. All of this stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I read to you today, this was written just a few years after Christ had risen from the dead. The same people have, were alive in this narrative that were alive when Jesus Christ was alive. This was all provable stuff. But but here's the transition in the narrative. Like, I, I'm not a lawyer. I kind of have fantasies of being a lawyer. I told my oldest he should be a lawyer. I just I love the idea of justice and proving your case. And so this is kind of a lawyer's case on display. The evidence is mounted, but now 12 years into Easter services, I know this. I know that we can look at this list and we can shake our heads and go, yeah, that, that, that's pretty good. I didn't think he could actually say all that. He's maybe a little smart, but honestly, I just read it from books. so I'm, not, I'm just regurgitating. But you, you look at this evidence and you go, hey, you know what? I, I never thought about this or I never thought about that. But he builds a pretty strong case. But, but look at me when I tell you this. I know a lot of you are going to hear this. And I'm not going to see you for another year. And, and honestly, you, you don't really care that much. That's a hard word. You look at it, you go, yeah, that's true. He probably did rise from the dead. He probably did die for my sins. But look at me for just for a second. If you, if you don't come but once in a while, I say look at me all the time. It's not just today. But, but hear me say this, you're going to agree with everything I said, but it doesn't change your life at all, and you're going to die. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's 50 years from now, and Christ is not going to be your Savior, and he's going to say, Department for me, I never knew you, and, and you'll have nothing to say because y- you had every opportunity. Right now before you isn't just Easter, it isn't just lunch, it isn't just dressing up your kids pretty, it isn't just doing something that is culturally relevant to come to church on this Sunday this year you are being presented with something that you are now going to be held accountable for, that Christ is not a way, he's the way, that Christ is the resurrected Savior, he's the only way to heaven, he's good, and that his death is your death, that his resurrection is your resurrection. And if you choose to make this not a big deal and say, I think it's probably true, but I don't see a need to actually follow Christ because I want to be my own Messiah, then you're going to be held accountable for that. And for that reason, this is the most important thing that you'll ever hear. That what you do with this information is absolutely critical. And so all throughout the last 2,000 years, this information has been held out to people on a platter on Easter in thousands upon thousands of congregations. And people have responded differently. But just know this as an evidential evidential reality of the resurrection. That Jesus' church has heard this information and it has stood the test of time. That Jesus is still around, and Jesus' church is still around, and millions upon millions upon millions of people have, even over a billion people, have formed the largest movement of all time. And the largest movement of all time is the church of Jesus Christ. It trumps every other movement in the history of the world. It covers more languages, it covers more nations, it covers more cultures than any other movement in the history of the world, and it impacts The global world, it impacts America, it impacts South Dakota, and it has definitely impacted Aberdeen. We are in evidence that Christ really raised. Amen? This church is too weird to not have the Holy Spirit behind it. I'm not weird, but but you. I mean, everything just kind of, the dominoes all fell. I I was reflecting. Easter always makes me reflect. I was in my 20s, I was a youth pastor here, I hit 30, I became the guy that talks to you on a regular basis, and now year after year after year we've been presenting the gospel and I was kind of doing some personal reflection on, on how how much significance God has chosen to use new life to have, and I think I've now baptized around seven or 800 people. People, I mean, that's not me, like anyone could do it, right? I mean, you just, it doesn't... You have to work out a little bit, but, I mean, you can get people out of the water. It's not, it's not that. I'm just saying God has chosen to use this church for his glory to present this story. And some people hear it, and they go, what's for Easter lunch? And some people hear it, they get a tear in their eye, and their heart is shattered by the gospel. And they say, Jesus Christ, take my life. Take my life. Restore it. Heal me from the inside out. Save my marriage Save my family. Help me to be a leader. I believe that you went to that cross in my place for my sins. I believe that you're still around. And now God is taking his church by this son of God who is the most simplistic person in human history, never married, never traveled more than a few hundred miles, never wrote a book, never held office, never had children, physical children of his own. He ministered for three years, died in a world that put him on a cross and now millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people have personal testimony. This Jesus Christ at New Life radically transformed my heart. And here's the closer. Lives are still being changed. What happens in your own heart is between you and Christ this morning, but make no mistake, regardless of that, the Holy Spirit's working, and there will be people in this room who hear the gospel right now, and right now there's like this tug of war that's taking place in your heart. Because it's not the evidence It's the life transformation that you know you desperately need. And so you're hearing about Christ and your affections are being stirred and your heart's starting to beat a little faster and your palms are a little sweaty because you're going, man, this isn't just a religious figure. He's God himself. He's the son of God, came down to earth, and he lived a perfect life, died the death I should have died, and he rose from dead, and now I have to do something with it. I did something that I did like five years ago and I said, Chuck, Go get me a prop because I'm coming back to this. We're going old school. I did this. I stole it from Francis Chan. I just want to do it today because what I know is five years ago, a lot of you didn't go to New Life. But I saw Francis Chan do this at a youth conference, and I'm going to do it. Uh, I was at the Hitchin Post this week, and so I just kind of have like this thing in my head, you know. <laughs> Although this is a metal wire, that's about as cowboy as I get. But Francis Chan did this, and it, and it changed This really affected me. I'm being serious now. He threw this rope out on the stage at a youth conference like 15 years ago. And uh, I didn't throw it out perfectly, but maybe that's God's sovereignty because life's not perfect. And isn't this kind of look what the continuum of life looks like? It's twisting and turning. But he threw the rope out through the continuum of eternity. And here's what Chan said. He said, in our dysfunction, guilty is charged, right? In our dysfunction, we look at the continuum of life through the lens of 75 to 80 years max. We look at the continuum of life like all we get, best case scenario, even though if you pull people, they'll say, yes, I believe in eternity. Yes, I believe in heaven. Yes, I believe in some type of higher power. But when they live their life, and here's the sad part it's not just for unbelievers. This is how Christians live their life, too. If you really boil it down to what they put on display as to what matters in their life, although they say they believe that they last forever, that the soul is not temporary and never perishes, according to Scripture, we live forever. There are two lives in the here and now on earth, in eternity in heaven. We would say that all of that matters and that nothing on this world truly matters, but the evidence in our life suggests the exact opposite, that what we think is truly important, although we live for billions of years, have you ever thought about that? Billion years from now, you'll still be here? Although we live forever, we take, and this is the foolishness of man's heart, we take those first 50, 75, 80 years, 90 years, best case scenario, and we put all the value in those things. And so this metal rope represents eternity. Now look at me when I show you this. Do you see this blue tape? This blue tape is the here and now. And this is the foolishness of how we treat life. We say, this this is my existence. This is the rope of eternity. But this little blue piece, and we fixate on it, and we get nearsighted about it, we say, this little blue piece, man, I'm going to raise my kids, I'm going to make some money, I'm going to make sure they're on the traveling teams they need to be on, I am going to have status in my community, I'm going to give a little, but I'm not going to give a lot, I am going to say that I'm a Christian, but Lord knows, between him and I, I would never even think of dying for this thing called Christianity because this blue piece and the scope of my eternity is all that really matters. And Christ is looking at this and he's going, man, I rose from the dead. I rose from the dead so that you could live with the Father forever. And you are so nearsighted that you look at your life through this little piece of tape on the rope. And he's looking at his church and he's going, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? How can you say that you truly believe that I rose from the dead? How can you truly believe that you will be raised to new life and then fixate on a blue of tape that has no real significance through the entirety of the rope? How many of us would confess this morning if we did a quick inventory, and I'm guilty too, we are so fixated on the here and now that we really cannot believe upon the power of the resurrection. That we have all the evidence, but little of the transformation. And So what I'm asking you this morning is where are you at with Christ? Do you know him in his death? Do you know him in his resurrection? Or are you focused on a little piece of tape That is all about the here and now, where you are the own savior of your own universe. And if that's your case, like there's no one that can really, this is your testimony. Here's what I would ask from you this Easter that you walked in here for a quick piece of religion, you're quickly gonna go be with your family. But what I would ask as we pray ourselves out of here is that you would have a moment with Christ. where you would confess your sins to him. Just in your heart, you don't have to come forward. I'm not asking you for to sign, some type of blood oath or anything weird like that. I'm just saying, between you and Jesus, this Easter, that you would confess that broken cannot fix broken. That there's a God, and you're not him. That there's a savior and you have been a bad savior of your own universe and that you need Christ to die in your place and rise from death so that you can have a new life in him and you can be with him forever and you can have him in the here and now empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you have never made a decision to follow Christ, what I'm asking for this Easter is right now in this moment, you would take a moment and say, Jesus, you're king and you're Lord and I want to follow you. I repent of my sin I believe upon your death and resurrection. You're my Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for hope that is only in you. I would just ask if there are people online right now or are in this physical space that are playing games with you and their evidence is mounting and they can't really deny that you are who you say you are, but they don't really know if they want to give up their own sovereignty so that they can follow you as Lord, that I pray that right now that they would say, Jesus, I lay my life down at the foot of the cross. You're in charge and you're Lord. Jesus, I thank you for people that are confessing you right now as Savior. Your resurrection is their resurrection. That right now they would say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. This Easter is my new birthday in you. I'm alive in Christ. We pray these things in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.